Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. This week, I'm happy to present a guest episode by Greg, host of the Early Stuart England podcast. This podcast is quite a bit ahead of the narrative of Pax Britannica, and this episode will pick up right in the middle of the First English Civil War. At this stage, the disputes between King and Parliament had devolved into violence, something we will cover over the next few months. In the meantime, please enjoy this guest episode, and if you want to hear more, go listen to the Early Stuart England podcast. You can find it on all podcast apps, and I've included a pod link in the description of this episode. Thank you to Greg for allowing me to share one of his episodes to help tide the feed over during my hiatus. So without any further ado, please take it away, Greg. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.7, The Ancient Britons. I ended last time with a brief note on the geography of the war. Parliament held sway in and around London, particularly to the east and south of the city. Meanwhile, Charles held Oxford, about 60 miles west and a little north of London, and its surrounding territory. Outside of the territories directly controlled by these sites of government, the war consisted of a series of small, regional conflicts. In each county, local royalists and parliamentarians battled for control. In the words of Lucy Hutchinson, one of the war's most prolific diarists, every county has the civil war, more or less, within itself. But for strategists at Westminster and Oxford, a coherent national picture began to emerge. Control over certain counties or regions were more important than others. The determining factor was the geography of support for the two sides. Most of Parliament's support came from a group of neighbouring counties around London those to the north and east of the city, formed the Eastern Association we met last episode. This gave Parliament the ability to concentrate their forces. Royalist support, on the other hand, was more geographically dispersed. The king controlled the territory around Oxford, but also had significant support in Wales and in the far north. To vastly oversimplify, this map drove strategy on both sides. Royalists focused on how to link their three main power centres, Oxford, Wales, and the North. Meanwhile, Parliament did its best to keep the Royalists separated long enough for Essex to defeat the outnumbered king at Oxford. These competing strategies determined where the most intense fighting would take place in 1643 and in future years. In the North, this meant conflict in Yorkshire, 
where a fragmented parliamentary resistance tried to keep the northern royalist army from marching south. And in the west, this meant fighting in the borderlands between Wales and England. Parliamentary garrisons, particularly at Worcester and Gloucester, acted as a roadblock between the king and his Welsh allies. We're going to deal with both of these theatres in the next few episodes. They tended to be isolated from one another, so I'm going to track the events of 1642 and early 1643 in both places independently. We'll start with the West, in and around Wales. In fact, the opening skirmish of the war at Powick Bridge, just outside Worcester, took place in this Western theatre. You'll remember that Prince Rupert successfully ambushed a force of parliamentarians. But Rupert quickly withdrew in the face of the main parliamentary army under the Earl of Essex, who secured Worcester soon after. This was important because Worcester guarded the road out of South Wales. The strategic importance of Worcester was lost in the story of our subsequent race back to London, culminating in Edge Hill, but parliamentary control of England's border with Wales would soon become one of the defining features of the war. In a feature the Royalists would continually seek to reverse. Connecting Oxford and the Royalist forces in Wales was Charles's most obvious path to victory. Once recruits were steadily flowing in from Wales, Charles could match or even surpass the manpower of Parliament's main army. But before we get to how the Royalists implemented their Western strategy, we'll have to address an issue I've left unexplored for several episodes. Why was Wales such fertile ground for Royalist recruiters? Wales has been the odd man out of our increasingly British story. England's sister kingdoms of Ireland and Scotland have always been a part of our narrative and have recently become even more important as drivers of rebellion and conflict. Wales, on the other hand, has barely rated a mention, outside of the occasional reference to the old Earl of Pembroke's background. In part, this is due to Wales's legal status. Unlike Scotland or Ireland, Wales was not a separate state that happened to share a king with England. Like Ireland, the English had conquered Wales in the medieval period. Most of the work was polished off in the 13th century, about 350 years before our story. But unlike Ireland, Wales had been almost entirely absorbed into the English state. There was no Welsh Parliament, or Welsh Church, or the other trappings of distinctive political or legal identity that could be found in Scotland and Ireland. But while the military conquest of Wales was completed by the 13th century, political integration into England took much longer. In part because it was a haphazard process. Medieval English kings had better things to do with their time than draft and implement laws that would draw Wales into the English system. The Welsh, for their part, rebelled often enough to prevent any meaningful assimilation. The hardy Welshman of the mountains became a stereotype in late medieval England. He was uncivilized and brutish, but a fearsome warrior. Henry Tudor, himself having Welsh ancestry, used Welsh soldiers to help him secure the throne at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, in doing so becoming King Henry VII. His son, Henry VIII, finally formalized Wales's political and legal integration into England through the Acts of Union, a series of statutes passed between 1536 and 1542, almost exactly a hundred years before the Civil War. Henry's goal was, as always with him, greater centralization and state authority. Once on the throne, Henry began the Great Tudor Project of State Building, a long process throughout the 16th century that saw the dismantling of the old medieval system of idiosyncratic feudal loyalties and relationships in favor of a rationalized state. 
Wales, with its somewhat ambiguous status as a foreign land absorbed into England, had plenty of these anachronistic legal and political quirks. The last vestiges of a distinct Welsh identity, at least in narrowly legal terms, had to go. As far as Henry was concerned, everyone, English and Welsh, was equally subordinated under his rule. The Acts of Union, passed in England's Parliament, of course, refashioned Wales as a part of England. The English common law now applied throughout Wales. The last vestiges of Welsh law were eliminated, and the legal distinctions between Englishmen and Welshmen were removed. The Acts of Union also redrew the Welsh map, dividing it into English-style counties. Just like their English counterparts, these Welsh counties selected members to sit in Parliament at Westminster. However, the Welsh counties only sent one member, rather than the two that the English counties sent. This was not as unfair as it sounds, as Welsh counties tended to be smaller. As a percentage of the population, Wales was just as well represented in Parliament as England. Perhaps the most important cultural impact of the Acts of Union had to do with language. In the interests of centralization and rationalization, English would be the sole language of governance and the law. But as we'll see in a moment, this was not intended to wipe out a distinctive Welsh cultural identity, or even the Welsh language. Henry and his successors on the English throne were happy to tolerate and even support the maintenance of Welsh language and culture outside of the courts. But when it came to law and governance, Wales was no different than any other part of the kingdom. The important thing for us to know about the 100 years between 1542 and 1642 is that the Welsh gentry loved the Acts of Union. Those families who worked closely with Henry VIII were rewarded with property seized from Welsh monasteries, and the gentry as a whole benefited from the English legal system. The Acts brought with them the justices of the peace and quarter sessions of English county life. Effectively, this increased the political influence of gentry officials at the expense of the old nobility, with their feudal rights and privileges. Broadly speaking, this was the backbone of the Tudor project throughout England, empower the gentry class in order to counterbalance the political and military power of the aristocracy. Our old friend, the Earl of Pembroke, provides an example of this in action. Pembroke's father, Henry Herbert, also the Earl of Pembroke in his day, was one of the last Welsh lords to retain the old vestiges of feudal power. When Elizabeth called on her subjects to defend the kingdom against the Spanish Armada in 1588, the Elizabethan Earl of Pembroke, Henry, raised a personal army of almost 1,000 men to rally to the Queen. But by the time we got to the 1620s, the Pembroke we're familiar with had no private army at his beck and call. Instead, he marshaled his power through gentry alliances in the House of Commons. But although the Tudors adopted the strategy of empowering the gentry throughout England, it had unique consequences in Wales, because despite what the law said, the English and the Welsh were different. Up until Henry's Acts of Union, elite society in Wales had been fairly insular. Within the wealthy classes, speaking English was frowned upon. The children of the landed elite never really needed to learn English because they were educated at prestigious continental universities, not Cambridge or Oxford. But the Acts of Union and the English Reformation changed all that. First of all, if you wanted power and influence in Wales, all of a sudden you needed to read and write in English. Welsh families quickly adapted, and English entered the curriculum for any aspiring politician or lawyer. 
Meanwhile, the split between Catholic and Protestant Europe meant that the Popish universities of Italy, or France, suddenly became problematic for a subject of the English crown. Within a generation, Welshmen became common sites at Oxford and Cambridge. Jesus College, Oxford, was founded in 1571 as a kind of Welsh colony within the university. As the young and privileged of Wales immersed themselves in English culture, they started to have ambitions beyond their corner of the kingdom. Careers in the church, politics, or commerce opened up and brought enterprising Welshmen into the centre of national life in England. The families of the Welsh gentry started to look just like their English counterparts, with connections at court, Westminster, and the commercial community of London. Not only did integration create national opportunities for the Welsh gentry, but it improved their situation at home, too. English common law brought with it primogenitor, the principle that the eldest son inherited all of the family's property. Traditional Welsh inheritance law was determined by, and I apologize to any Welsh speakers, cafran, which roughly translates as share or allotment. As the name implies, property was divided equally among a man's sons. Over time, the Welsh system of inheritance fragmented property and limited the growth of dynastic families. The import of the English system meant that gentry families could now consolidate their estates in a single child and more easily accumulate wealth over the generations. This was precisely what happened over the second half of the 16th century and the first half of the 17th. By 1642, Wales had a well-established gentry class that was wealthy, integrated into national politics, and devoted to the English legal and administrative system. And the gentry were not the only people to benefit from the integration of Wales into England. In the century after the Acts of Union, an urban commercial class emerged as well. The elimination of any legal distinction between English and Welsh meant the elimination of arcane restrictions on trade between the two nations. The port towns on the south coast of Wales began doing a brisk trade with nearby Bristol and the other coastal communities of the West Country. And so, running parallel to the legal and administrative gentry class, a newly prosperous Welsh merchant community made inroads into English markets. These men built business networks in Bristol, Exeter, London, and all places in between. In fact, the rural gentry and urban merchants of Wales had a mutually beneficial economic relationship. The consolidation of estates by powerhouse Welsh families created an abundant supply of livestock, and the Welsh gentry took to enclosure as eagerly as their English neighbours, with a focus on taking advantage of the rolling pasture land of their country. The high demand for food in London and other English urban centres made the export of livestock big business. Wales also produced a healthy supply of wool for the textile industry, and Welsh wool was gobbled up by the cloth workers around Shrewsbury. Wales also produced plenty of coal, though the high cost of overland shipping meant that Welsh coal could not crack the London market. There was no competing with the cheap stuff carried down by sea from Newcastle. Instead, Wales fed smaller urban markets in Bristol and the West Country. As a result, the towns of South Wales, like Pembroke, Newport, and Cardiff, became prosperous trading communities with economic and cultural links to England. All of which is to say that Wales as a whole enjoyed a great period of stability and prosperity in the century after the Acts of Union. After centuries of conquest and rebellion, the rule of law finally held sway over Wales. In the century after 1536, the population of Wales nearly doubled to over 400,000, 
and that growth was in spite of large numbers of Welsh men and women migrating to England in search of economic opportunities. Perhaps more than their English neighbours, the Welsh appreciated the benefits of a stable political and economic system. As the events of 1642 would prove, they were far less willing than the English to threaten that social order by supporting rebellion. But the most straightforward explanation for Welsh loyalty to the crown had to do with religion. Although the Acts of Union turned Welsh elites on to the benefits of learning English to further their political careers, for the majority of the population, Welsh remained the language of daily life. That included the church, where Welsh continued to be used from the pulpit. As a result, Henry VIII's English Reformation made little headway in Wales, because English was the operative word. The new ideas that shook the foundation of English religious life all circulated in English. Opportunities to translate Protestant ideas into Welsh were limited, as Wales had no university to act as an incubator for theological thought. Nor did Wales have a mature printing industry to spread new ideas. Language acted as a barrier, and Wales remained largely Catholic throughout Henry's reign. Henry's son, Edward, pushed the English church in an even more radically Protestant direction, but again he met with a wall of resistance in Wales. Edward's Book of Common Prayer, which he produced in 1549, was poorly received in Wales, largely because it was in English. Not only did the new services promote strange and foreign beliefs, but they were delivered in a strange and foreign tongue. The Welsh had no interest in this incomprehensible twaddle. It took Queen Elizabeth to finally open the pathway to the Reformation in Wales. The key to her efforts was a Welsh translation of the Bible. It was far easier for the Welsh to follow the Protestant directive to look to Scripture when they could read it in their own language. The Welsh Bible was unique in early modern Europe in that every other translation was part of a national state-building project. There wasn't a Welsh state, but Elizabeth's Bible ensured that Welsh remained a written language. By itself, however, a Welsh Bible did not ensure that Wales became Protestant. The Elizabethan regime also fostered a helpful mythology of the ancient Welsh church. You see, the Welsh saw themselves as an indigenous people. Their identity was bound up with being the ancient Britons, those who resided in the British Isles from the beginning of time, separate from the recently arrived Anglo-Saxons in England. The Welsh Protestant church built on this historical identity. The Reformation wasn't about bringing in a new church. The Welsh Reformation was about restoring the church to its most perfect form, the ancient Celtic churches of the British Isles that predated the perversions of Rome. This relied on a romanticized view of the Celtic past, which is perhaps familiar to us today. But then again, national identity usually requires a healthy dose of romanticism. Just like the Presbyterian Scots, the Welsh fused religion and a distinct national identity. But unlike the Scots, the Welsh did not have an entirely separate church. Services could still be conducted in the Welsh language, but like everything else in Wales, the church was integrated into England. England and Wales shared the same liturgy, fell under the same religious laws, and their bishops existed in the same hierarchy. In fact, you may recall that William Laud's first posting as a bishop was at the Welsh seat of St. David's. But rather than being an obstacle to the mythology of the Welsh Church, this integration with England actually strengthened the Welshness of the Church. This wasn't Wales accepting the domination of an English Church, this was England accepting the superiority of the Welsh Church of old, 
the entire Protestant movement in Europe was cast as a revival of the once perfect Celtic Church. The humble and often scorned Welsh people had a central role to play in the redemption of Christendom. It was like something out of the Sermon on the Mount. So by the time we get to the early Stuart period, Wales had become predominantly Protestant. But as you well know, the English Protestant church was a very diverse place. Where exactly did the Welsh fall within the big tent? The deep roots of the old Celtic church tended to make Welsh Protestantism fairly conservative. For them, the Reformation wasn't about breaking down the Catholic church to allow new ideas to flourish. It was about restoring the purity of an even older established church. As a result, the Welsh tended to be more suspicious of Puritanism than most English churchgoers. Things like bishops and the structure of services were not just religious concerns, but deeply cultural and national ones too. The church was the one place where Welsh identity still mattered. Politics, the law, and commerce were increasingly English, but in the pew on Sunday, everyone was unambiguously Welsh. As a result, the Welsh tended to be very protective of the forms and structure of the official church. In the great debate between the highly structured Laudian wing of the church and the Puritan or even Presbyterian fringe, the Welsh tended to side with the forces of order and hierarchy. Hardline Calvinism was the product of Swiss, Dutch, and Scottish thinkers. To the patriotic Welsh, such foreign ideas had no appeal. Why borrow from other nations when the ancient Celtic church provided the best model? As a result, Puritan ideas did not make much headway in Wales. The few exceptions were the southern trading towns. Merchants there had frequent interactions with merchant communities in England, particularly in Bristol. And the urban commercial classes of England tended to be fertile ground for Puritanism. Bristol especially had a vibrant Puritan community on its fringes, even delving into the kind of radicalism you might find in London. As a result, pockets of Welsh Puritanism popped up in towns like Cardiff and Newport, but especially Pembroke. Although these pockets formed a small minority of the Welsh population, they will become important in a few minutes. So, by the 1640s, Welsh integration had been moving at a steady pace for about a hundred years. The Welsh gentry now played a national role in governance, just like the provincial gentry in the other corners of the kingdom. We've met a few in the course of our podcast. John Davis, the Attorney General of Ireland who planned the Ulster Plantation, was Welsh. So too was John Williams, the bishop who was perpetually sticking his nose into politics. Over the past century, the Crown had consciously managed this integration with the aim of limiting Welsh cultural grievances. The Welsh language remained an important part of religious and daily life, and the new English-style JPs and other county officials were almost always native Welshmen. Foreign administrators were avoided whenever possible. In fact, under the Tudors, Wales became far more united in its Welshness than it had ever been in the medieval period, when various Welsh princes competed for power. Henry VIII established the Council of Wales, an executive body that reported to the Privy Council in England. Like the Council of the North, the Council of Wales allowed for a degree of local autonomy. And perhaps more importantly, as it was staffed by Welshmen, the Council provided an administrative hub where Welsh was spoken. The fact that the Tudors drew their lineage from Wales certainly helped too. And the arrival of the Stuarts only heightened the sense of Wales being a part of England, but one distinct from the English. 
After all, James and Charles were not just kings of England, they were proper British kings, rulers of England, Ireland, Scotland, and, of course, Wales. The Welsh relationship with the monarchy was therefore a bit different than the one between the king and his English subjects. The crown represented all the British peoples. Rather than a symbol of English domination, the Stuart monarchy was a guardian of Welsh distinctiveness. Much like the Catholics of Ireland, the Welsh saw the crown as their best defender against the encroachment of English chauvinism. The great fear that animated the Welsh was not the fear of a tyrannical king, but the fear of being swallowed up by their greedy neighbours in England. In fact, early in James's reign, the Earl of Northampton had suggested an Irish-style campaign of land confiscations and plantations in Wales. James promptly shot that idea down, confirming to many Welshmen that their king knew how to properly balance the interests of his Welsh and English subjects. It may sound like a contradiction, but the Welsh of the early Stuart period were proud of their distinct cultural heritage and devoted to the system of political integration that had worked so well over the past century. English law, the established church, and the monarchy had brought prosperity and the preservation of Welsh culture. The Welsh people would not toss those aside lightly. As a final note, one thing I haven't mentioned yet is what the English thought of the Welsh. Northampton's Welsh plantation scheme perhaps provides a clue. English memories of the Welsh rebellions of the past were fading, but they certainly didn't see their neighbours in Wales as their equals. Despite the inroads the Welsh had made in national politics, many English men and women thought of the Welsh as barely civilised mountain people. Hardy soldiers, but foreign and uncultured. A century of assimilation with the English had raised them up, but they were still barely a step above the Gaelic Irish. As you might imagine, the war would throw these ethnic tensions into high relief, especially considering so many of the Welsh fought on one side, the kings. In the lead-up to the Civil War, the Welsh tended to be sympathetic to Charles, without being hardline royalists about it. For instance, ship money collections went more smoothly in Wales than in your average English county. As so much of the Welsh population lived along the coast, funding a national navy was an easy case to make there. Welsh public opinion also largely sided with the king in his wars against the Scots. The established church, including bishops and the Book of Common Prayer, were touchstones of Welsh identity, and so support for a Presbyterian rebellion in Scotland was not forthcoming. Once the Long Parliament got going, the Welsh were also receptive to Charles's arguments that he was the defender of order and the established church. It was the parliamentary junto that represented radical change in religion and the social order that Wales had enjoyed for the past decade. For the gentry elite, the king represented the comfortable status quo. For their part, the lower orders of Wales did not tend to support the parliamentary regime either. Unlike the artisans and apprentices of London, the working men and women of Wales had not been politicized by news and print culture. Wales was too isolated for that both geographically and culturally. Political material made little headway in Wales, as it was almost always printed in English. Perhaps just as importantly, the Welsh tended to support the king because Charles represented Britishness, whereas Parliament, for the wary Welsh, was an uncomfortably English institution. The idea that the Parliament in Westminster represented specifically English rather than British interests is one we'll encounter again and again in the future. The Welsh were the first to appreciate that the English Civil War was an ethnic conflict, as well as being a political and religious one.
Soon enough, the Irish and the Scots would come to see the English Parliament as an ethnic power as well. In fact, the Irish Rebellion in the fall of 1641 sparked anti-Welsh sentiment in London. Many feared that Charles would use the Irish Rebellion as an excuse to raise an army in Wales. Parliament ordered the close observation of the London residents of the Earl of Worcester. You'll remember him as the Catholic noble with lands in Wales who would go on to contribute so much to the Royalist war effort a few months later. In the following months, Parliament became ever more suspicious of Welsh intentions. In February 1642, a grassroots petition emerged from Wales, calling for peace between King and Parliament. Considering Charles had just committed the unforgivable act of trying to arrest members of Parliament, Westminster treated this as a provocative expression of royalism. This fueled the publication of anti-Welsh pamphlets in London, and sparked rumours that the King was heading to Wales to raise an army there. As it happened, the king went to York instead, where his attempts to raise an army that spring met with little success. Imagining an alternate universe where Charles did go to Wales in the spring of 1642 raises some fun counterfactuals. Might he have mobilized an army there before Parliament could create an army for the Earl of Essex? Certainly the anti-Welsh bigotry on display in the streets of London did nothing to dissuade the Welsh from their royalist instincts. When the kingdom split into two armed camps in the summer of 1642, Wales mostly broke for the king. The one exception was the town of Pembroke, on the southwest coast. Over the medieval period, the region had been heavily settled by English and Flemish migrants. Its commercial links with Bristol and the West Country had strengthened this English connection and introduced Puritan ideas. As a result, Pembroke became a bastion of parliamentary resistance in a largely royalist nation. We'll return to the parliamentary holdouts at Pembroke as the war progresses. Aside from the isolated garrison in Pembroke, though, Wales as a whole quickly gained a reputation for being the nursery of the king's infantry. By the Battle of Edge Hill, large numbers of Welshmen had already joined his army. Indeed, without them, he probably would not have been able to face Essex in open battle. Whatever other stereotypes the English may have had about the uncivilized mountain men of Wales, they respected them as rugged warriors. Charles did his best to nurture this Welsh support. He made sure that his capital at Oxford was well-stocked with Welsh-language Bibles and books of common prayer. At the outset of the war, he announced the creation of an honor guard for his son, Charles, Prince of Wales, to be populated by Welsh volunteers. But back to the opening months of the war. After the Edge Hill campaign, Wales continued to produce recruits. The Earl of Worcester, as ever, bankrolled the raising of a Welsh army, but Charles did not think it was politically advisable to have a Catholic commanding one of his armies, so it fell to William Seymour, the Marquess of Hertford, to command the Welsh. Hertford was descended from Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset. If you know your Tudor history, you know that Somerset acted as Lord Protector to the young King Edward VI and the Seymour family had been accused of harboring ambitions for the crown. The Marquess of Hartford, R. Seymour, had continued this family tradition of dancing up to the line of treason by marrying Arbella Stuart in 1610. This was a highly controversial marriage because at the time Arbella was fourth in line to the throne through her Scottish royal blood, and Hartford was sixth in line due to his descent from Henry VIII's sister. Arbella was 35 at the time, and Hartford just 22, so King James suspected that this marriage was about consolidating a claim to the throne, rather than a love match. 
Hartford, like several of his ancestors before him, was thrown into the tower alongside his wife for their treason. The pair managed to stage a breakout soon after, but while Hartford made it to Dutch exile, Arbella was apprehended and died in the tower a few years later. After Arbella's death, Hartford posed less of a threat to James, and in 1616, the king welcomed the exiled noble back home. But once again, a marriage made Hartford a nuisance to the crown. In 1620, he married Frances Devereux, the sister of the Earl of Essex. The match helped align Hartford with the dissident peers of the 1620s and 1630s, men like Essex, Warwick, and Bedford. In fact, Hartford could have easily joined the narrative at many points in the past. He supported the Petition of Right in 1628, and was one of the twelve nobles who signed the petition demanding Charles call a parliament in 1640. Which probably has you wondering, why is this guy commanding the king's Welsh army? The answer lies in the confused politics in the run-up to the Civil War. Battle lines were fluid throughout 1641, and many people changed sides over the course of the year. In fact, it's not strictly accurate to talk of two sides until pretty late in 1641, or even into 1642. The Long Parliament dealt with many divisive political questions how power should be shared between Parliament and the Crown, the future of the English Church, whether the Scots were an enemy or an ally, and how to respond to the Irish Rebellion. As a result, many men found themselves agreeing with their longtime allies on some issues, but disagreeing with them on others. In the late summer and autumn of 1641, when the king was off in Scotland, Hartford found himself disagreeing with his brother-in-law, the Earl of Essex, and a circle of friends more and more. Edward Hyde's moderate message of order, the established church, and no more judicial murders like that of Thomas Wentworth, spoke to Hartford. After all, the Triennial Act ensured that Parliament would never again be sidelined the way it had been in the 1630s. As far as Hartford was concerned, the victory had been won, and all this talk of radical religion and neutering the king was dangerous and unnecessary. In the months that followed, Hartford watched with horror as his old allies drove England into civil war. His loyalty to the crown was so obviously genuine that Charles rewarded him with a promotion to the rank of Marquess. He had previously just been the Earl of Hartford. Command of the important Welsh army was just a further sign of the king's trust in him. For his part, Hartford never gave Charles any reason to regret that trust. Working with a royalist hardliner like Worcester was a bit awkward, as Hartford definitely fit into the moderate, constitutionalist camp of royalists. He also had misgivings about Worcester's Catholicism, but despite all that, Hartford was always energetic in the royalist cause. Before Edge Hill, Hartford had been attempting to expand his recruitment effort into western England through Gloucestershire and Somerset. But the locals there were far less interested in fighting for the king than those in Wales, and after some disorganized skirmishes, Hartford gathered his men at Sherburne Castle in Somerset. There he heard the news of William Waller clearing the royalists out of the south of England. You recall Waller's capture of Portsmouth won him some good press in London. The approach of another parliamentary force under Denzel Holes, the future leader of the Peace Party in Parliament, convinced Hartford to withdraw back into Wales. Most of his men went with him, but he detached a small force under a veteran soldier named Ralph Hopton to press on further into the west, to see if Devon or Cornwall might provide fertile ground for royalist recruiting. Despite Hartford's failure to drum up any support for the king in Somerset, his small army started to swell when he returned to Wales in the fall. After Edge Hill, it became clear that this was a real war, 
not just a bunch of posturing on the part of Charles and some dissidents in London. The threat to Wales was now more visceral and real, especially since Essex and his great army had marched so close to the Welsh border at Worcester. Motivated by loyalty to the king and fear of the English invader, the young men of Wales rallied to Hartford's banner. By early November, he had a force of 7,000 men at Cardiff. In London, wild rumours were spreading about this fearsome collection of Welshmen, though not just men. One pamphlet warned that hundreds of women were tagging along too, wielding knives near half a yard long to effect some notable massacres. Of course, the author was drawing on English bigotry more than actual intelligence. Like any other army, Hartford's had its share of civilian followers. But parliamentary soldiers often had these dark rumours of Welsh trickery in the backs of their minds when they met Welsh royalists in battle. For now, though, the royalist threat was safely contained in Wales. Small units of Welsh soldiers tried to slip past the parliamentary garrisons at Gloucester or Worcester, but they were usually spotted and destroyed. Capturing the two garrisons was a daunting task, and so Hartford was forced to wait for support before moving out of Wales. Next time, we'll join Hartford in searching for that support. It did not come, as you might expect, from Charles's main army at Oxford, at least not yet. Instead, we'll travel down England's southwestern peninsula towards Cornwall. Ralph Hopton, the man Hartford had sent on an exploratory mission before withdrawing from Sherburne Castle, faced a near-impossible task. Accompanied by only a handful of men, he sought to turn Cornwall from a bitterly divided county into a royalist stronghold, capable of raising an army that could drive Parliament out of the Welsh borderlands. Thanks again to Greg for this episode. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the Early Stuart England podcast, follow the link in the episode description or just put Early Stuart England into your favourite podcast app. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favourite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus was the sphinx ten thousand years old were there serial killers in ancient greece and rome what were the lives of transgender intersex and non-binary people like in the ancient world we're jen and jenny from ancient history fangirl We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the temple of the feathered serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.